You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this last end, the season of Advent, and for the anticipation of your birth. Soon, soon, you will come. And so we ask, Lord, even as we linger on, as we long and wait for your Advent in our lives in a new way, we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace to see you once again this morning in all of your great glory, in all of your humility, in all of your great love for us. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Here is a poem about one of my favorite characters from one of my favorite books. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, there is a character at the beginning of the trilogy that appears to be a kind of lurking nobody. He's called Strider. And then as the books progress, it becomes clear to the main characters that there is more to him than meets the eye. He is, in fact, the long-lost heir to a throne that's been vacant for centuries. The books are so wonderful. I love them. I love them because they remind me of the true story, the story of human history, the story of salvation history and God's work on our behalf. The books tell the tale of an unbelievable victory over a horrible evil. And one of the results of this victory is that the true heir to the throne rises up to become king. Strider, in fact, becomes King Aragorn. And from the ashes of a family tree, a fire is woken, and the crownless again is king. I love that character, Aragorn, because he points to the reality of our true king, King Jesus. Jesus, too, is the long-awaited heir from a lost lineage. He rises up from an unknown place to claim a long, vacant throne. Isaiah prophesies about him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. All that is gold does not glitter. Well, the people of Israel had longed for a king. They'd longed for a king to reappear because their kingdom had been conquered and they had been sent into exile. They were vassals to other powerful empires. And there had been a prophecy, a promise, long before the exile even, of an everlasting kingdom for them, a a promise that had not yet been fulfilled by the time of Jesus' birth. And so in the first lesson that we read for today, we hear God make that promise to his servant David. 2 Samuel 7 has been called one of the greatest evangelical moments in the Old Testament because it's one of those moments where the good news of God's unmerited grace shines so clearly through. King David there has finally ascended to the throne that the Lord anointed him for so many years before. During many years of persecution and living on the run even for fear of his life, David, that boy who had slain the giant Goliath, waited. 
He waited patiently for the Lord to act on his behalf. He had opportunities even to kill the current King Saul or to take the throne, but he refused to act without God's approval. That could be said to be a definition of faith, right? Waiting patiently for God to act on our behalf. David waited patiently for God to act on his behalf for years. And now in our passage for today, David had finally begun to reign, reign over all 12 tribes of Israel. He was settling in. He had conquered a capital for his kingdom. Once there was peace in the, in the land, David then settled down. He built a palace for himself in that new capital, Jerusalem. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, he now also desires to build a house for God because he has his own nice house. Maybe he feels bad that God is living in a tent while he is living in a beautiful house. David has received God's lavish grace in establishing his reign, and now he wants to give back. He wants to do something big for God. And at first, this seems like a good idea. In his flesh, the prophet Nathan thinks this is great. He says, go ahead, go do it. But when Nathan goes to sleep that night, God corrects him in a vision and tells the prophet to go back to the king. God will not let David do this big task for him. God responds to this desire of David's by pointing out that he gave David unmerited grace in the past by calling and anointing him as king, and God would continue to give David unmerited grace in the future by doing a whole number of things, by making his name great, by appointing a place for the people of Israel so that they would dwell in safety and have rest for their enemies. And then the bottom line, God says that he would make a house for David by giving him offspring. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Wow, what a promise. What a bottom line. David had tried to make his relationship with God a relationship of give and take, tit for tat, by building God a house, by building him a temple where people could worship him. And God insists instead on keeping their relationship one of unconditional love. He promises to make David a house or a dynasty, every monarch's dream right? Well, like David, we too might want to give back to God, not necessarily out of gratitude, sometimes out of gratitude, and that's fine, but sometimes we want to give back to God because we think we need to earn the grace that he's already given us. Somehow we get it in our heads that God's grace is only extended to us at the beginning of our life of faith. We might think that he saves us from sin and death, but then we think that he wants us to take it from there. We've got it. We'll take it from there by working hard to earn his good pleasure. We're terrible about receiving grace. We're so bad at it because receiving grace, when we say I need grace, it suggests that um, 
we, we are in need. It suggests that we're not perfect. It suggests that we don't have it all under control. I loved um, one of the former deans of the Advent, whom many of you know very well, probably better than I know, Paul Zoll. I heard him once say that you should, um, when it's this time of year and people are giving you all kinds of gifts, you should always have one gift ready to go, or at least one, or maybe if you're smart, three or four, that's already wrapped, that could be a gift that would be given to anyone, that would be, um, people would do this, right, as a way of giving back, so that if someone unexpectedly gave them a present, they would have one right back. Uh, to give right back uh, as a return, as a way of keeping the relationship equal, tit for tat, give and take. And Paul Zell suggested uh, that people not do that. What what would it look like if we just received the unexpected gift from the unexpected person, that gift that we hadn't planned for? What if we just received it and forced ourselves not to give anything back, just to say thank you, to receive it, to open it? That would be uh, an example of receiving unmerited grace, unconditional love. We can never do anything to pay God back for what he has done for us. And David could never do anything to pay God back for what he has done for him. God is amazing. God gives David grace through a specific person, an everlasting king, a king who happened to come in the most inauspicious of ways. All that is gold does not glitter. How beautiful then, too, that we receive God's saving grace through that same person. On one level, this promise of God is fulfilled in David's son Solomon, who did build God a temple in Jerusalem. But then immediately after Solomon's reign, the 12 tribes of the nation split apart. The kingdom was divided. And then both kingdoms eventually were conquered by the reigning superpowers of the day, and the kingdom was lost. David's heirs to the throne went into exile with the rest of God's people. They, too, experienced God's just punishment for their sins of idolatry, apostasy, and injustice. And so the throne of Israel was empty for a long, long time, for hundreds of years. And yet, the people of Israel still trusted in God's promises. They trusted in God's character of faithfulness. They kept on waiting, hopefully, for the coming of a king. And so in Luke 1, our gospel lesson for today, we see that Mary herself, like a true Israelite, was waiting, hopefully, for the coming of the king, the everlasting king. When the angel tells her what God will do, Mary rejoices because she knew that God was following through on the promise that he had made so long ago. She knew that God's judgment had turned to mercy. About her son, the angel said that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Through no merit of her own, Mary is chosen by God for this special task. She is told that God's promise to David so many centuries before would be fulfilled through her child who would then reign over an everlasting kingdom. After so many generations of longing and waiting, God would raise up a king from the most unlikely of places. All that is gold does not glitter. 
God was faithful to his promise to David. His word, his promises can be trusted. This is God's character of holiness. This is God's steadfast love, which endures forever. This is his covenantal love, his hesed. God works in a way that is absolutely other from the way that the world works, from the way, indeed, that all human beings work. St. Paul in the New Testament points to this reality, the reality of the way that all human beings work and the reality to the way that God works. When he assures the Corinthians in his second letter, he assures them that he is operating out of God's own faithfulness and not broken human vacillation because he has changed his plans. And so he writes, Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time, as surely as God has, is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. You might have been burned when you trusted other human beings. Maybe you assumed that your spouse meant their wedding vows. Maybe in a more ridiculous example, you trusted the product reviews on Amazon.com only to find out that the reviewers were paid off with merchandise. Maybe your child, who is not quite an adult, tells you that he's going one place, and then you find out, oops, that's not where he was. Maybe you enter into a contract in your business with another business, only to find out years later that they didn't do their part. They didn't hold up to their part of the bargain. Time and time again, human promises will let us down because they're made by broken human beings. The glitter of human promises amount to a pile of dust. God's promises, though, are pure gold. Our two lessons today, 2 Samuel 7 and Luke 1, show together that God never fails to keep his promises. All God's promises find their yes In Jesus Christ, not all that glitters is gold, and all that is gold does not glitter. Again, we live on in a place where this idea of the everlasting kingdom is a promise that has still not been fully realized. This is why as Christians we might get to celebrate Christmas in a few hours, but we will remain an Advent people until Jesus' second return. Based on his resurrection and his ascension, we know that Jesus right now is seated at God's right hand. He reigns currently. His kingdom is here in part. And yet we know that when he finally returns at the last day, at his second coming, then truly every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And yet we live on in between the reality of his first coming and his second coming. Until he returns, we have to recognize that we live in a broken and hurting world where sin reigns. And yet, we can trust God's promises, just like David trusted God's promises, just like Mary trusted God's promises, not because of anything wonderful about themselves, but because of the character of God who is trustworthy. We can trust that God will keep his promise to bring about the eternal reign of great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. 
when we feel then that we are living in this in-between place, when we are in the midst of the reality of our persistent sin, or we are lingering under the suffering, a suffering of cancer of a loved one or our own bodies, when we experience emotional angst or even mental illness or addiction, when the death of a loved one looms and we cannot escape, or when at Christmas, how often at Christmas do we feel the complicated and dysfunctional relationships of our families, those relationships that we cannot get away from. We live in the midst of this pain, and yet we can look to God's faithfulness in keeping his promises in the past to trust that he will keep them in the future. It will not always be like this. We pray That's the way we live now, in between we pray. We pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you reign here in our midst. And so as I mentioned, just to summarize, number one, we cannot give back to God as a way of earning the grace that he has given us. We cannot have a two-way relationship with the Lord of the universe. We can only receive. And secondly, we can trust that God will fulfill his promises because his character of loving faithfulness is unchanging. And finally, my third point is really just a return to my first point. God's grace is extended to everyone, and yet it is fully received by those who know that they need it. Mary and Joseph were not rich or important. We see later on in Luke that when they bring an offering to the temple in thanksgiving for Jesus' birth, they can only afford to bring the least expensive of offerings, a pair of turtle doves. Mary knows that she has received grace in receiving the honor of bearing this child. Mary knows, too, that this is a sign of the end of God's judgment of exile upon his people. This is a sign of grace for all of Israel, but especially for the poor, the needy, the outcast, and those in most need of grace. This is a sign, too, for the whole world, all of the nations of the world. Mary shows this reality of those who need grace receiving it based on the way that she sings as we sang in our first hymn. Here's a quote from Mary's song. He has shown strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. All that is gold does not glitter. God brings grace through his Son, Jesus Christ, to those that know that they need it. Can you with me admit that you need grace too? You and I are in need of that baby born in the most unlikely of places. You and I are in need of that man who died the most horrible death. You and I are in need of the hope and rescue that only Jesus' birth and death and resurrection can bring. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your character of unchanging love for your faithfulness to your people, for turning your judgment into mercy by sending your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your love, that you didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself to be born as a baby in Bethlehem for us. And we thank you, we praise you, we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace to receive grace once again this morning. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.